Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining today. Uh, it's my great pleasure to help introduce and then moderate today's discussion with Dr. Gordon Adams. Uh, before I introduce Gordon, I do want to say a few words about the speaker series itself. The Smart Power Speaker Series is an outgrowth of the CSIS Commission on Smart Power, which was co-chaired by Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage and Harvard Professor Joseph Nye. Uh, the Commission on Smart Power grew out of a need to recast a more optimistic vision for U.S. foreign policy, and its report was issued in November of last year. The purpose, really, of the report was to bring prominent Americans from a variety of backgrounds and across the political spectrum together to have a constructive debate over the future of American global leadership. This is actually the 21st installment of the Smart Power Speaker Series, and going before uh, Dr. Adams was an il equally illustrious group of uh, featured generals, uh, foundation presidents, CEOs, ambassadors, and other leaders who shared their insights on how America can be balanced and integrate its soft and hard elements of power. Now to today's discussion in particular. Gordon Adams is currently a distinguished fellow at the Henry L. Stimson Center, and he's a professor in U.S. foreign policy at American University. Uh, Gordon was recent, most recently a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and prior to that for seven years he was a professor at George Washington University, where he was also uh, the director of the school's security policy studies program. He's previously been deputy director at IISS in London. He served for five years as the associate director for national security and international affairs at OMB. Um, and he has been an international affairs fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's published a variety of books on issues relating to defense spending, to defense budgeting, and then into the realm of international affairs funding. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Gordon today. Thanks, Kath. You know, when you, when you arrive at a think tank and they make you a distinguished fellow, all that that really means is you're old. That's, uh, they can't make you a senior fellow anymore. It's a sort of superannuated category of existence. But thank you very much. It's great to be uh, here at CSIS, and I'm really pleased to be able to talk in the, in the Smart Power series, because that uh, series is a great series, and the uh, Smart Power report that Rich Armitage and Joe Nye did uh, is really one of the core contributions that's happening uh, in this broad discussion that people seem to be having now in Washington, D.C., about what do we do about our national security institutions and our national security processes, and how do we make up for lost time? I'm calling what I'm going to talk about today uh, rebalancing and integrating the national security toolkit. Uh, and I call it that for a, a, a very specific reason. I want to focus in much of what I say on answers that may help us get after a couple of problems. Uh, problem number one is that our civilian toolkit for national security uh, is weak, it's unfocused, it's dispersed, uh, and it's very unintegrated. Uh, there's an absence of strategic planning, strategic planning in the, uh, the world of what I as a budget Winnie have come to know as 150 uh, is uh, an additive list rather than a real strategy. There's very little link between what we'd call in the defense world requirements and resource planning. Uh, and as a result, one of the consequences of this over the years is we come to rely on DOD heavily uh, for national security, diplomacy, program action, foreign assistance, increasingly, as I will describe later on. And so part of my objective here today and part of my objective in general right now and in part through the program that I'm running uh, at, uh, at the Henry L. Stimson Center 
uh, is to work at ways to rebalance the toolkit, to strengthen, to empower, uh, to fund, to modernize, and to integrate uh, the civilian instruments of foreign policy and national security policy making. Uh, the other issue that I'm going to touch on right at the end, uh, less than on the first one, uh, is the shortfall that we have, if you will, in interagency coordination. We're behind the times, and I think now quite out of step with the problems that we're facing in national security, the challenges that we face in national security. Uh, the machinery that we built was built for the Cold War. It doesn't function effectively in the post-Cold War world, so there's a very strong need there as well to provide a clear direction, planning, integration, and strategy, uh, as well as resources. Uh, what I want to point out is in both of these cases, and this is an important bottom line for me at least in what I'm saying today, is that this is a much more significant challenge than just the question of post-conflict stabilization and reconstruction. I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about that specific issue. But uh, post-conflict stabilization, uh, post stabilization and reconstruction in countries where U.S. forces are deployed is a micro issue in the broader tapestry that I am trying to weave here. And while our operations in Iraq and Afghanistan have exposed weaknesses in our tools and weaknesses in our processes, my view is if we structure reforms and resource planning around that specific question, we run a very severe risk of what I call fighting the last post-war, uh, with a real risk of diversion and misbuilt resources for the tasks, tasks that we face that are larger than this. And so I wanted to start by a very brief discussion of what those tasks are so you can see to some extent, why what I'm talking about later on goes in the direction that it's going. I'm not going to, I'm not going to drown you in view grass. One of the things that I told Kath is I will, I will not put up here on the wall something that tells you every sentence that I'm about to tell you in print. Uh, when I show you slides, they're going to have to do with data and information. They're not going to have to do with, gee, that's just a wording of what I just said to you. So I'm not going to give you this list. I'm going to give it to you orally. I, I classify my view of the challenges that we face in five categories. Uh, globalization, which has a lot of dimensions today. Poverty, uh, inequality, the shifting international financial universe we're looking at and the unstable financial universe. Uh, energy markets, energy consumption, food availability, which is today's headline. Uh, but there are a series of issues that involve the consequences of having a much more highly integrated set of economics, uh, communications and information flow that poses a number of national security dilemmas for us and for other countries. And we lack a strategy and we have institutional dispersal uh, that is uh, not making it hard for us to deal with those challenges. The second challenge I call failing fragile and brittle states, or if you will, the challenge of governance. Uh, in a wide swath of countries, Africa, the Middle East, parts of Asia, uh, it's a challenge of governance, a challenge of the inability of some entities to maintain order, the monopoly over the use of force, to provide adequate services to the populations over which they are the governors, and to be adequately responsive to the uh, societies where they are the governors. Uh, this breakdown of governance in some areas of the world is probably the greatest source of instability that we have today. And again, we don't have a unified, clear strategy or set of institutions to deal with it. 
The third challenge, one we're probably least prepared to deal with today, is what I call identity conflicts. Uh, the conflicts of ethnicity, conflicts of religion, conflicts of nationality, which has, while it interacts with some of the other challenges, its own kind of corpus delicti. It's a particular thing in our particular part of history that poses challenges, clashes, and confrontations we need to deal with <clears throat> and can pose security dilemmas. The fourth is what I call transnational challenges. And there are a number of these, but their, of course, common characteristic is that they are less linked to states than they are to phenomena that cross state boundaries uh, at will. Uh, terrorist organizations, infectious diseases, environment, crime, narcotics. Uh, and you will note, it's not by accident, that I put terrorism there, not as the first headline. Fifth, there is what I call the shifting power balance that everybody's aware of, the rise of global actors, China, India, the rise of regional actors, Iran, Brazil. Uh, and here, I think, at a period of adjustment for us of some consequence, the, the American century that was supposed to be was rather short-lived. Uh, and we no longer live in what I would call the American century. Uh, we live in a very dispersed century of power around the world. Uh, and in some of those hands, and I put the proliferation issue here, a particular type of weaponry becomes more and more available to other countries that are regional or potentially international global powers. Now the question for me, I mean those are the challenges, and to me those are challenges are a more interesting array and set of challenges than focusing narrowly on stabilization and reconstruction. That comes into this universe as a subset. And my question that I'm talking about today is are we organized to deal with them? The issues here then are to tease out the relationship between these policy challenges and the structure and processes of our national security institutions. And here my bottom line, if you will, is that the neglect and chaos on the civilian side, which is mostly what I'm going to talk about, uh, has made us increasingly what I would call a one-note Johnny. We've got one tool, we use it often, and increasingly it isn't helping us out. So I want to talk about four particular sets of processes and institutions. Uh, as highlights of what I'm going to say. Uh, the first of these is what I would call uh, diplomacy and foreign assistance. So I want to start there, if you want to unmask the data, which this is, this is really going to send you blind because I have no idea why the focus is that way, but we can see if that can be fixed. Um, when I was at OMB from 1993 to 1997, 90% uh, of my fiscal responsibilities we're in the area of defense, or 050. 90% of what, to use the technical term, my SURIS, was in the world of 150. The problems were all in 150. Uh, the solution sets and the organized processes were all in the world of 050. And that diaspora, as I call it, the diaspora of programs, organizations, and institutions is portrayed here in terms of the FY 2009 budget request. But the diaspora has not changed significantly from the diaspora that I confronted 15 years ago. Uh, it's changed in little bits. Well, we made it simpler. We absorbed USIA and ACTA into the State Department. Not sure that was the best outcome for USIA, but that is what happened. Uh, on the other hand, the Bush administration created MCC and PEPFAR. So we've gone in and out. Uh, the, the instinct in the 150 world is when there's a problem, create a new organization. 
And so we have repeatedly, since the European Recovery Act, late 40s and early 50s, created institutions to administer programs of foreign assistance rather than develop those programs in the framework and integrated civilian set of institutions. Uh, and inside this world, there is precious little integrating process for planning and budgeting. Uh, inside this world as well, there are alien cultures, uh, people who talk with difficulty to each other. Uh, since, as I said, the late 1940s or early 50s, the State Department culture doesn't do program. Now, I'll come back to a change in that that I think is taking place. But not doing program is part of the Foreign Service culture. Uh, developers, people who are doing foreign assistance and economic development, don't do diplomacy, and they've gotten very small in numbers. Uh, so there is a real cultural uh, problem inside the 150 world. When I look at this chart and when I think about what we need to think about doing, um, what strikes me is that we need to think about my goal we is to integrate foreign assistance as a tool of statecraft, including development. I want to say that again because it's an important objective for me and it draws a distinction about approach. Integrating foreign assistance as a tool of statecraft, including development, and ensuring that the development part of foreign assistance is supported. Now that's a twin objective in the world of foreign assistance and diplomacy, and both are important. Uh, and the reason that, that both are important, I will get to by changing pictures on you. Uh, this is a portrayal of state USAID bilateral economic assistance uh, in the uh, fiscal year 2009 budget. Uh, if you look at these wedges, uh, this is, by my judgment, inside state aid, the way the foreign assistance package divides up. A series, again, the diaspora of programs, of programs that deal with foreign assistance objectives that I would call strategic or policy-directed. Another set of wedges that are foreign assistance programs that have development as a primary objective. And I set aside PEPFAR for the moment as neither one nor t'other at the moment, but as a presidential initiative at 22%. So roughly half of the foreign assistance the United States government provides to the rest of the world of various kinds does not have development as its primary objective. Roughly a quarter does, and then we have to talk about where PEPFAR fits. This is in the state aid world. Now, if you've gone back to the, the previous chart and you've seen the diaspora of organizations, you will see uh, MCC wedge up here and an agriculture wedge, uh, which could be said in part to have developmental objectives. They also have governance objectives. Uh, but inside that universe, which is related to state aid planning capabilities, this is the way the pie divides up. Uh, and these programs, moreover, are connected. Um, they're, they're not two completely different worlds, these two sets of programs. AID implements a good part of the Economic Support Funds, ESF, a good part of the support for Eastern European democracies, the SEED wedge, or the Freedom Support Act for the former Soviet Union wedge, uh, along with their own development assistance and uh, childhood, child survival and health programs. So AID is actually not, strictly speaking, a development organization pure. 
It is an organization that does development programming, development-oriented, strategically-driven programming, and straight economic assistance, non-development in intention, all within the operating structure of USAID, our principal foreign assistance agency. Now, that's one connection. The other connection is if you look at some of these other wedges, and there'll be an exam after the, the lecture, by the way, so that you know that what all the alphabet suit means. Um, a number of those programs, and I'm speaking here particularly about the counter-narcotics efforts, Freedom Support Act, Eastern European Democracy, Anti-Terrorism and Nader, Peacekeeping Operations, Training of Foreign Militaries, the IMET program. Uh, a number of these programs, in, in effect, constitute what I call mission creep at the State Department. We talk about mission creep in the military, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment when I talk about stabilization, reconstruction, and security assistance. Uh, but mission creep in the State Department, too. Increasingly, Foreign Service officers, State Department personnel, are doing what I call programs. So that generalization I gave you a moment ago about, you know, state does represent, report, and negotiate, and AID does program, is not really true anymore. That there is a growing amount of activity inside the Department of State that is program activity. It's program planning, it's program budgeting, and in places like INL, it's program implementation. Uh, so increasingly, you see a blending of these two cultures happening by a process of what I would call mission creep. Uh, and especially on the ground, the separation between these two cultures is nowhere near as it appears to all of us who worry about moving boxes around on organization charts in Washington and who's on first and what's on second. When you get out into an embassy and you look at how a country team is working, very often in the country team you'll find that the distinctions between people who represent, report, and negotiate and people who actually run programs is much less clear even than it is here. Uh, and in many embassies they do operate as a team and diplomatic responsibilities end up with AID people and program responsibilities end up with State Department people. It's not all integrated and there are cultural issues, but the blending is noticeable at the operational level in the field. So what clearly to me is indicated here is a need for a more clear strategic integration as a core structural objective in the way that we think about these programs uh, in the coming years. Uh, and from my point of view, that has the following kinds of elements. One, uh, the important strengthening of USAID inside the State Department as a functioning organization. Now, I could go in a long history of what's happened to AID over the years with shrinking budgets, shrinking capacity, shrinking staff, contracting out, becoming more contracting managers than they are program implementers and runners, and problems of that kind. But it remains the core capability in the U.S. government for delivering economic assistance, for delivering foreign assistance, and badly needs strengthening, a process that may begin uh, with some of the budget requests this year. A second dimension would be to further the integration of these capabilities by putting planning and budgeting and foreign assistance personnel in larger numbers in regional bureaus and country desks at the State Department. So the State Department represent, report, negotiate people, talk to the people who are doing the budget planning program, administration program management, and understand each other's culture and the utility of each other's operations to each other. Thirdly, and this raises a bigger issue that I'll come back to, uh, empowering regional assistant secretaries at the State Department as regional integrators. 
for policy purposes. Now that relates to the DOD relationship, but I'm going to come back to that. Fourthly, uh, and some this has got a little bit of weenie speak inside Washington stuff. I apologize. I've lived here too long. Uh, building on the current in effort at an integration process in the State Department known as F in the shorthand jargon of Washington, the Office of the Director of Foreign Assistance. Uh, building on that uh, effort that's been underway for two years, not abolishing it. Uh, it's a very important point to me. F has been criticized for being not transparent enough, too top-down, too constrained by its country framework. All of those things are changing, and all of the critique of F is fixable. It's fixable without statutory change. It's fixable by sheer effort of leadership, by sheer process changes. But it's very important, F. To me, it's very important because it takes you back to where I was in 1993 to 97, when the only place in the entire federal government that all of these foreign assistance and diplomatic programs came together in one place, and that was my desk. And I was at OMB. Okay? I wasn't in that set of agencies. This is the first integrated serious effort that I've seen made inside the State Department and the 150 world to try to pull these things together in a coherent and integrated process and link them to strategic priorities from the point of view of the Secretary of State and the world of 150. Uh, I think it would be a tragedy to throw that out at this point and really sensible to work with it and to fix what needs to be fixed in it. Uh, AID does very well in that process, by the way. You will hear it said that it's very difficult for AID to survive face-to-face -face with the State Department. Uh, AID actually staffs most of the F work, uh, not, uh, not the State Department, because AID does have the program people, and this is about foreign assistance. And they've implemented not just development, but strategically driven foreign assistance programs, so they've got the capacity. Uh, and they're learning things about programs they didn't know about before. Uh, they've also actually done very well in the terms of the budget process. Uh, the fiscal year 09 budget does very well uh, by USAID and the, uh, even the core development assistance programs and the staffing capabilities at AID that's now on a trajectory to add 1,000 people over the next three years. So I, I say case not shown that the development people don't survive in a diplomatically driven organization. Uh, I think it's then very important to consider how one institutionalizes this capacity because planning and budgeting and strategy planning are such an, a unique, almost unnatural act in the State Department uh, that it may be very important not to lose the voluntary, what was a voluntary exercise by leaving it voluntary. But to think about doing some things like um, creating an undersecretary of state for foreign assistance who is responsible for the development and strategically driven assistance programs. To think about utilizing an existing statutory capacity to create a deputy secretary of state for management and budget. Sound familiar? Maybe it's just my professional deformation. Uh, but somebody who actually is responsible for the internal COO apparatus of the State Department USAID, something that has only accidentally happened. Rich Armitage was a good one. Larry Eagleburger was a good one. But aside from that, it's a case universe of two. Uh, not a natural act to administer inside. But if you're going to bring program and diplomacy in a closer relationship to each other, you want a COO, and there's an existing statutory capacity to do it. And then make sure that the undersecretary and the deputy secretary are represented 
in a way that satisfies the intent, if not the wording, of what the Smart Power Commission called for, which is a cabinet-level voice for development. Uh, now, uh, Joe Nye has been very clear, was very clear in testimony uh, last week, that he's not calling for a Department of Development. He's calling for a high-level voice for foreign assistance. And I think that's very clearly desirable. And the last piece I think there definitely needs to be considered, and I won't go into depth here, but there is a cultural issue that needs to be dealt with, in my judgment, at the State Department. I call a lot of solving this problem an HR issue, human resources. How we recruit and who we recruit to be the Foreign Service Officer of the future. I get myself in trouble with my Foreign Service buddies when I say this. You know, needs to change. Report, negotiate, represent ain't good enough for the way we're engaging the world today. How we train them, what we train them to do, when we train them, not just at the beginning, but mid-career. How we rotate them, not only within the state aid complex, but outside state aid and into the other agencies of government like defense, like justice, with whom they have to work. Uh, how we incentivize them to engage in those rotation, rotations rather than just up an economic and political reporting stovepipe. And what skills we train. We need to reinvent, in my judgment, the Foreign Service of the United States to match the, the, the problem set, the challenge set, the tool kit set that we need to have, which means they need to be better skilled at management, program, management implementation and evaluation, strategic planning, budgeting, congressional relations, a whole skill set of things that your average good two-star has already learned in the Department of Defense, but your average ambassador does not. And because it's, we're now in an operating universe, it's important to have those skills. They need not only to know regional knowledge, country knowledge, language knowledge, but technology, economics, the politics of identity. There's a huge educational transformation that is a job yet to be done. And my final point on this one in particular, on this issue of diplomacy and foreign assistance, uh, which is not to create a Department of Global de Development. Okay, that is controversial, I know, with some people, in fact, some people in the room. Um, but I, I think trying to create a separate development-oriented department in the federal government is a very bad idea whose time should not come. Uh, one, it exacerbates the diaspora. Uh, you won't get all of these organizations corralled into that one organization. You won't strip other departments of what they do. Uh, and so you will have a small development department, which is yet another mouth to feed in the world of 150. I go back to my diaspora experience. Uh, secondly, uh, it divides the strategic purposes of our foreign assistance programs. You remember, I showed you, I showed you these wedges, strategic and development. Well, if you create a department of development that's solely focused on development, uh, then you leave a whole series, 52% inside the state aid complex, of programs outside the Department of Development. Now you have two choices. You can incorporate those programs into the Department of Development, but then it's not a Department of Development anymore because most of those programs aren't development in their orientation. Or you can leave them at the State Department to run, but then, given the culture, you have to create another architecture at the State Department to run them, exacerbating the diaspora problem. So not a wise idea on, on, on those counts. Uh, thirdly, I think it would seriously reduce the level of, uh, it, it would seriously increase the level of political vulnerability for development assistance by creating a department. 
as opposed to strengthening that constituency, I would argue it will actually make it more vulnerable, exactly the opposite of what its proponents advocate. Uh, one of the biggest supporters of development dollars, the Secretary of State, is unlikely to be as enthusiastic about pitching for a program that doesn't belong to his cabinet department. Congress, which is always at the best of times skeptical about U.S. foreign aid programs, is likely to be even more skeptical. And the program has a very weak constituency in American society. So I'd have some very wonderfully performing, exciting, and interesting supporters in organizations and NGOs in Washington. It's not clear the constituency is there to carry a department. Uh, in a way, it makes it vulnerable to something that Jesse Helms might have only dreamed of doing, which is killing it altogether. And he tried. Um, so that's my view on a Department of Development. I much prefer organize, organizing towards the integration, doing the transformation at state, having the kind of elevation and leadership to foreign assistance that it deserves, making development a high priority in that organization, and leveraging the evolution that's happening in that organization today to make it more effective. So that's what I had to say about, state, about uh, foreign assistance and diplomacy. The second window I wanted to open briefly is on stabilization and reconstruction. You remember I said earlier, uh, if we ax all of our reforms on the, the problem, and it's a real question of stabilizing and reconstructing post-conflict societies, um, you know, we may be fighting the last post-war. Um, and I, would, I, I think focusing in on what we need to do as a high priority on the problem of stabilization and reconstruction is the wrong target. It's not a, that it's not a problem. It's that the issue is governance. Uh, and governance is a bigger issue than societies in which the United States invaded and now needs to re reestablish having invaded it. Uh, the issue is governance and how to deal with this broader problem of failed, fragile, and I would say brittle states. We don't focus on the brittle ones so much, but there are some states you can see about to break, or when they go, they go fast and break very sharply. Uh, and you know that to me is the bigger problem. Doing stabilization and reconstruction, I don't know if I should say this at CSIS, but it's a growth industry in Washington. Uh, but the goal of that growth industry uh, is really to complement what DOD does. And I'm going to come back to that in a bit in talking about AFRICOM and SOUTHCOM. Uh, it's short-term, it's operational, it's intentional, and rightly so. But it is not long-term, it's not developmental, it's not society building, it's not really capacity for governance. The short-term objective overwhelms the long-term. It's expensive, it's risky, and after all, one has to ask oneself, how soon are we going to do another Iraq? So building that big a capacity is probably going down a distorting road for the goals, objectives, and institutions of American statecraft, in my judgment. A more limited capability clearly is needed because governance is a problem. Fragile states are a problem. Failed states are a problem. And a capacity to anticipate to intervene in a preventive way, and especially to do so leveraging the private sector, international organizations, allies, international organizations, uh, all of that uh, is the capacity that I think we ought to be looking for. Now, right now, we're building something slightly different, if we can say we're building it. Uh, this is my latest run-through on what we're doing in stabilization and reconstruction. 
six different capacities or programs that we have uh, in DOD and at uh, the USAID state complex. Uh, the CERP program, uh, the, commander, the Combatant Commanders uh, Initiative Fund, the Humanitarian Disaster Relief Peace, the Office of Transition Initiatives at AID, the Provincial Reconstruction Teams, which aren't really capacitized, if you will, in the Washington context, but are sure out there digging away in the country, uh, and SCRS, which is the most visible, uh, that and SERP, the most visible of these. SERP is largely the, the funding source, though not entirely, from, uh, for the PRTs. Well, right now, we've done it the American way. You know, first we'll do it chaotically. If we can at all do it at all, we'll do it chaotically, and then we'll have to step back and figure out how the hell do we organize all of this stuff that we've got scrambling and falling all over itself across the federal government. You know, who is in charge here is not clear. What's the strategy here is not clear. The most recent report on the PRTs from the House uh, Armed Services Committee was that it's totally lacking in integration, in strategic planning, and unifi unified set of objectives across PRTs. They're, they're all ad hoc, and some work, and some don't work, and it's not clear that they're being well evaluated in any case. And that's just the PRT piece. Um, each of these has a problem, but none of them are exactly the capability that we're looking for. Uh, so my objective here, you know, again, what's the goal? A limited capacity to be able to anticipate, to intervene with other co-conspirators, uh, and to do it in states before they become basket cases where one sends the Marines. Uh, which has me putting the leadership for this kind of effort in the State Department AID complex, not over in the Department of Defense. Uh, and there's an issue there to resolve, which I'm not going to try to resolve here today, but it's one being, I sort of think, genuinely and regularly ducked in the State Department, which is, what does the Office of Transition Initiatives do and what is SCRS about to do? Uh, there's even a challenge of culture between two organizations at the State Department today, uh, one of which has a high priority, SCRS, and the other which has less of one. But I would not expand the efforts that are ad hoc in the Department of Defense. And I'm going to come back to SERP in a minute when I talk about security assistance. So let me go there and take a look at security assistance. Here I probably got most of the view graphs, I suspect. Um, security assistance and who delivers it. CSIS did a great report. Cat uh, had a big hand in it uh, on uh, security assistance programs. Came out last December. It's, uh, you know, at, at full, dis full disclosure, I was on the task force. Uh, but I think it came out with probably what is one of the better analyses of where we stand on security assistance programs right now in the federal government. Uh, and here we are dealing again with questions of civilian weakness and very rapid development uh, over in the Department of Defense side. These are data you've probably all seen before. Who delivers what the OECD in Paris calls development assistance? Uh, in, this is self-disclosed data by the United States government. It's not data gathered independently by OECD. But as we disclosed that data, uh, defense was responsible for official development assistance in 1998. 4% was provided by the Defense Department. 21.7% in the 2005 fiscal year. Uh, 2005 calendar year, reporting year, because these are uh, outlays and obligations uh, as reported to the OECD. So something's happening here, <laughs> I hate to tell you, but the data says something's happening here, something's going on, uh, and this is what's happening. This is our first cut. This is the only ice drain chart I'm going to indulge, fortunately. 
but this eye strain chart says here is a very long laundry list of assistance programs uh, initiated, provided, implemented through the Department of Defense. And some of them you'll see in a shorter chart in a moment, but I wanted to treat you to the whole nine yards here. Uh, this, aside from CCIF, the Command and Commander's Initiative Fund, which has been around for a while, but whose funding request is growing rapidly, and as you'll see in a moment, whose terms of operation have changed, uh, the, this rather long list of programs is basically almost all, I think, except for that, since 9-11. Right. This is a rapid growth in capacity. Uh, it is a growth uh, driven by being on the ground, inventing programs on the fly, and moving ahead as fast as you can, uh, and then working at institutionalizing them. And I've broken down a simpler, non less, much less straining chart, because these are the major ones. Uh, that we were talking about. The big one, of course, and this is not in the OECD data, so lest you ask, the train and equip funds for Afghan and Iraqi forces, that is obviously the largest, a big TAE program, which led almost directly to a program to try to do something on a smaller scale in a lot of other countries in the world, Section 1206. The combatant, uh, Commander's Emergency Response Program that I referred to a moment ago, coalition support funds that we don't generally talk about, uh, but they are uh, a uh, budget subsidy program, a reimbursement program to governments providing us, us with support uh, for counterterror operations, principally Pakistan and Iraq. Great CSIS. I'm praising CSIS too much. I'm going to get myself in trouble here on Pakistan and the programs in Pakistan that uh, uh, Craig Cohen and others had a big, big hand in. Um, Excellent report. And the Combating Terrorism Fellowship Program, which is very small. And on the right-hand column, uh, I've simply put the parallel traditional security assistance program. Uh, because almost all of these have a similar program, as you will see on the right-hand column on the previous chart. Uh, we have been doing many of these things, one way or another, over in the 150 side of the world. Uh, we are now doing a lot of these things over in the 050 side of the world. Uh, the issue here is less one of who can most effectively do these, though that is an issue. It's not clear that DOD is the prime competence in all of these areas. Uh, the issue is foreign policy guidance. Uh, what is the intentionality behind the kinds of programs that we're doing and in the countries in which we are doing them? And who is responsible for that guidance? Is it to meet DOD's mission performance needs, or does it have implications for um, the broader relationship? And I wanted to mention AFRICOM and SOUTHCOM in doing that. Um, because here's what Jim Stavridi said, probably standing right here, about three months ago, uh, talking about what they're doing down at SOUTHCOM, which is much celebrated in town. And I love that term Velcro cube. I think that's a very revealing term, Velcro cube. It's because we want to be like a big Velcro cube these other agencies can hook to so we can collectively do what needs to be done in this region. And the question one has to ask is which, whose needs, needs to be done are we talking about? DOD's need to be done? The United States national security strategies need to be done? Uh, when you're hooked to the Velcro cube, it's not always clear whether you're serving operational requirements and who is defining the requirements that the programs are serving. Uh, not inconsistently, General Ward, about AFRICOM, 
it's structured with interagency relationships in mind, incorporating interagency personnel into the command will boost DOD's ability to support security, stability, and humanitarian assistance efforts. Right. It's not quite clear, though, that that is consistent with U.S. national security and foreign policy efforts. Uh, and it's not always clear. This is not, it's not a slam at DOD for doing something nefarious. They have a mission. They have an operational requirement, and they recognize that there are ancillary functions around it that ought to be performed. And so the natural instinct is to create a Velcro cube and attach everybody else to your Velcro cube and accomplish your purposes. It's a very natural instinct. It's not nefarious. But the question remains, does it serve the national security purposes and foreign policy strategic objectives of the United States? And who determines that? Right. So there is a, a question here, uh, very much, of foreign policy and strategic guidance. It's not always clear that all of these programs belong in the Department of Defense. Um, it puts a stress on the forces. That's to be sure. They may be minor in spending terms, but forces out doing SERP things and security assistance training and the like are doing something that they, is not core to their mission. So they're having to be trained up to it, go to school, figure out how to do it. It draws away from that core military capability, so it adds to force stress. Secondly, by creating as a default position the view that DOD has the money and the capability, we ought to ask DOD to do it, that mere default position further weakens the civilian capabilities of government to do it. So we say, well, DOD's doing it. We'll be okay. Thirdly, it reduces the oversight and accountability of these programs to the electorate via the Congress. Uh, because these are small programs in money terms in a very, very large DOD budget with committees that are mostly focused on the core competence of the organization. They don't get the kind of scrutiny that they need to have. They aren't looked at by the foreign relations committees uh, because foreign relations committees don't have jurisdiction over these programs. So the architecture of representation in American government that looks at and holds accountable program activity uh, is not, in fact, as empowered by this MO. Uh, and finally, and this is the most difficult issue to raise with this, but it's a very difficult issue. I think everybody in the room probably honors the role of responsibilities and accomplishments of American military doing these kinds of missions. They're trying very hard. And it puts on U.S. international engagements overseas a military face. And while that may be fine with us, it's not always fine with the people on the receiving end. Uh, they don't expect to see the U.S. military being the enactor of foreign assistance overseas, and that sends a very unique kind of message. Uh, they're not always in the market for the Velcro cube. Um, so um, I think we need to rethink this architecture and look very carefully at these programs. Uh, DOD does a lot of the implementing of the traditional architecture that I was showing you before. FMF, IMET, uh, those are programs that DOD implements, but the State Department is responsible for budgeting and planning and for the strategic direction of those programs. Uh, and I think we need to return to that model with SERP drawing a much more careful dividing line uh, between what it does and what other capacities, SCRS, OTI, do in the foreign assistance world, with fellowships reintegrating the 
counterterrorism fellowship program into the IMET structure. Heck, they use that architecture now to run the program. It's the same architecture. Uh, with the budget reimbursement, coalition support funds programs, bringing that back into the framework of the economic support funds that they are most similar to. And especially with train and equip on a global basis, restructuring it as perhaps a drawdown program where the State Department is the policy decider, or retooling, which I would prefer but it's harder to do, the foreign military financing program so it is more agile and flexible uh, and uh, contingency focused uh, than it has been to date to meet the needs of the 21st century. In other words, balance the toolkit. Um, these authorities continue to grow, however, and I wanted in the last two slides just to point that out. The Combatant Commander Initiative Fund uh, was expanded in the Fiscal 07 Defense Authorization Act to include humanitarian relief and reconstruction assistance with priority be given to those things, reconstruction assistance, particularly in a foreign country where our forces are engaged in a contingency operation. And the new submission from Defense for Legislation around what they call the Building Partnership Capacity would make the 1206 Train and Equip Program permanent law, raise the funding ceiling to $750 million, allow us to assist in the training of Ministry of Interior Forces. Section 660 of the FAA does not allow AID to do this. The CERT program would become permanent in Title 10. And it could be used for a similar program to assist the people of a developing country undefined where United States forces are operating undefined. So a broad expansion. Counterterrorism increasing funding and the humanitarian assistance program expanding its envelope to include stabilization, otherwise undefined. So we're moving in a direction that further exacerbates the problems that I see at least in these programs. Okay, final, you can cover that back up, thanks. Final point that I want to make comes back to my second point, and I said I'd just touch on it briefly, and we can discuss it if you want, uh, and that is the interagency process. It's all very well and good to try to fix what's wrong in the world of state aid and foreign policy, but our current process interagency is also out of date, ad hoc, weak. There is fortunately a lot of thinking going on in this town about the interagency process, the Project on National Security Reform, Beyond Goldwater Nichols here at CSIS, um, and a lot of thinking that my colleague Cindy Williams and I have been doing, and I just wanted to tick off some headers that are worth discussing on the interagency basis. One is uh, a regular interagency quadrennial national security review. Uh, that prioritizes and focuses every four years on the national security broad agenda, not just defense. A national security planning guidance, uh, which could focus on key priorities that emerge from the strategic review and hand down guidance through a process we can discuss uh, to the agencies for those key priority areas. We have a prototype in the national implementation plan. Flawed, weak, has problems. Let's work on it. Uh, a tight interaction, much more than happens today, between the National Security Council and the Office of Management and Budget in the White House in administering such a process it means real change for both organizations. Full agency support in that process. Uh, a national security budget document. We talk about what that may mean, but a document that is a single document transmitted to the Congress covering the gamut of national security uh, problems and focusing on that area, those areas that are priority. Uh, rewriting NSPD 44, 
so that NSC and OMB have the responsibilities and leadership role I think they should have, and not SCRS at state. Uh, and considering integrating the Homeland Security Council into the national security architecture uh, in the White House. Now those are just headlines. I'm happy to talk more about those if you want to during the discussion, but I've run a good bit of time and I've probably given you a lot to shoot at. Uh, so it being more than 20 minutes after the hour, let me stop there and I'll happily take questions. Thank you. going to take a moment while Gordon is able to get himself mic'd up here. Well, I'm going to take the uh, moderator's privilege and ask the first question. You, you raised so many interesting issues. It's hard to pick just one. Uh, but, but I think one thing that I find perplexing really is uh, maybe an, an eternal unsolvable, but I'm hoping you can shed a little light on it. I know you recently testified with the Senate Armed Serv sorry, the Senate Formulations Committee. And I think m much of what you see in this dichotomy between DOD taking on more and more and the civilian capacities getting weaker and weaker has much to do with the dynamics, the political dynamics around those tools themselves. And there's such a different dynamic um, at every level in the, in the world of American politics between the Defense Department and the American public, but very particularly between the Defense Department and its authorizers and appropriators, then the State Department and its authorizers and appropriators. So I'm wondering if you're seeing any movement on the State Department tools and its congressional um, constituency and how they're starting to view the problem, and are they getting it? It's a, it's a very good question because it's, the politics of these two universes, if you will, are very complicated and very different. Um, probably the two or three principal issues that I think separate them are, one is um, a, a, a clear question of constituency. Now, people often stop with the issue of constituency and say that explains it. It doesn't explain it all to me. But in constituency terms, when you have... Mm, you know, $700 billion a year, including supplementals, to play with. Uh, and you have, by two-thirds of what the federal government buys uh, out in American society, uh, you have a tremendous architecture of political influence uh, at, at, your, at your beck and call. It's a very fine-tuned and very integrate web that connects the, the agency, its committees, and American society at large. Um, again, it's not necessarily nefarious, it just is. You have a huge ripple effect of defense spending in the American society. I'm not saying the economy so much as the society. Uh, and that gives the Defense Department a kind of constituency for its spending that the Department of State and the AID complex do not have. It was not always thus. Uh, in fact, I, I'm amused to look back in the history of late 1940s, 1947, when DOD was created under the National Security Act, one of the considerations that the, the founders had in mind was to strengthen the capacity and the ability of the Department of War and the Department of Navy to be equal at the table with that big bad boogeyman in the Department of State, the powerful agency in American national security. There's been a really ironic kind of reversal of roles uh, over the succeeding 50 years or so uh, in the relationship between the two departments. Uh, but Constituency is one big difference, and that ripples into its constituency in the Hill. The State Department, you know, has 30,000 Foreign Service nationals, none of whom, almost none of whom work here, and most of the State Department personnel is around right within 10 miles of this room, 
that's in the United States. Uh, they don't do an awful lot of buying in American society. There's not a ripple in American society. So it makes it very difficult to work the politics of your agency. Even AID, which spends most of its contracting dollars in the United States, does not have the same ripple effect. It's just too small. There's a big difference, too, in terms of constituency. And this lashes up to the Hill, too, in terms of the culture of the two, uh, the two organizations. I mentioned this a little bit in passing and talking about human resources. Uh, the culture of being trained, educated, and deployed as a Foreign Service officer is very different from the culture of being trained, educated, and deployed as a military officer. Uh, in, in, in general, in a military career, as you work your way up the food chain, you touch a lot of the bases of operation of what your organization does. So by the time you're a two-star, you know an awful lot about a lot of things, about the way that building operates and what people do. And it's not always perfect, but a lot better than a Foreign Service officer who goes up one stovepipe and stays there. And so does not learn, is not taught, doesn't get mere career education on things like congressional relations. Uh, you could, I've never done the body count, but I'd be willing to bet you that it's by a factor of several hundred to one, the number of military, young military officers who have been detailees on Capitol Hill compared to the number of young FSOs who've been detailees on, on Capitol Hill. It's not a career enhancer in the Foreign Service world. It's a uniquely powerful tool for a department like the Department of Defense to have that integral sense of how the Hill operates and how offices operate and what they need and what they do and to be in a position to help out. State Department, AID don't have that capability. Uh, so what, you know, that's one set of variables coming from the department's end. The other, from the Hill end, it really is the collapse of meaningful jurisdiction in the Senate Foreign Relations and the House Foreign Relations Committees. Uh, who haven't passed a total Foreign Assistance Authorization Act in 22 years, uh, who passed the State Department Authorization Act fairly regularly, but that's operational requirements in the State Department, um, who don't seem to be able to organize themselves on a legislative agenda, uh, who do not play a role in the budget process like the authorizers do for the Department of Defense. They don't authorize the budget for the Department of State. The, the appropriators routinely waive the authorization in the appropriations bill. So it's really the appropriators who focus on the foreign policy world. So there's nobody there who's worrying about how you build, strengthen, and operate the institutions. Uh, they're just a series of ad hoc considerations driven by unique member interests or subcommittee interests that play in small programs that get stitched onto the Department of State or AID or just built as separate agencies. But nobody is minding the store on the authorizing side on the Hill. Now, is that changing? I'd like to think so. I mean, I will say that uh, Senator Biden, uh, the hearing I testified at last week was one of a series that he's going to do on how the structure and processes in the civilian toolkit actually work. And that's a good thing. Now, whether those hearings lead towards a legislative agenda, a willingness to take a look at the Foreign Assistance Act and see if it needs to be reauthorized, a willingness to think about the structure and organization of the departments, uh, even a willingness to think about creating any new department, that really remains to be seen. Uh, but there is more interest in this subject among the authorizers uh, on Capitol Hill than I have seen in a very long time. Okay, let's start over on the right, all the way to the back there. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your presentation very much. I'm um, sorry, if you can just stand up and say your name yes, and your my, affiliation. Yes, my name is David Greenlee, and I appreciate your presentation. 
Uh, I think we, all of us, or many of us, understand the, the dangers of ad hoc fixes uh, and, uh, and how authorities given away sometimes never come back. But uh, do we really have the luxury of waiting for the architecture to catch up with new realities for, uh, for funding to be provided and State Department officers to be trained the right way? Before we tackle uh, problems like uh, uh, national police that can't uh, do their work in, in fragile states, uh, what's the fix? Because uh, in other words, can we, should we just uh, say time out on expanding 1206 authorities? Thank you. Well, I, I think that the, there's a lot of questions buried in what you asked, and it's a very good question because it's very rich in, <laughs> rich in possibilities. I don't think we have the luxury to let things go the direction they're going. And that means to me, right now, we probably have in the next 12 to 18 months, the best opportunity to grapple with some of these fundamental issues that we've probably seen ever since the 1947 National Security Act. There's a tremendous amount of interest in, these in this town in these issues. And, and note that I say in this town, because these are the kinds of issues that get dealt with in this town. These are not electoral campaign issues. These are not constituency issues. These are exactly the kind of issues you can deal with inside the universe of Washington. Who has what authorities? Who gets what kind of money? How are the structures built? You know, who, who gets appointed to leadership positions? How do you fix recruitment training and, and promotion incentives? All of those things are susceptible to action now with relatively little in the way of statutory change. Uh, the, the Section 1206 piece that you're, that you're pointing to, I think, is a really crucial issue. Uh, and it's not just a question of training police officers in countries whose police can't do their job. That, that's a whole, there's a whole essay that we could get into on talking about that. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody can train anybody else's police officers to do their job better. Uh, if they try to, it's not clear that the United States has the capability to train police officers to do their job better, given the structure and background of our policing forces. It's not at all clear to me that the military is appropriately uh, trained, exercised, or prepared to train cops rather than to train soldiers. Uh, and so solving that problem is not just a question of throwing 1206 money at it and hoping that something sticks to the wall. We've known about the policing problem at least since the Balkans, if not earlier. And we've known that there is a problem training anything from a sort of heavily on gendarme, carabinieri type force to regular cops on the beat. Uh, what the international community has not yet done successfully is get itself together to find the right international assets who know how to do that and to get those people trained if they are trainable. But I say if they're trainable because, you know, we have such a can-do mentality. Well, we just shoot some police officers in there. By God, we'll train those police and they'll behave. They'll be just like our police. You know, I, I would think that the last six or seven years' experience in Iraq and Afghanistan have diminished some of our hubris about our capacity as the United States of America to step into another culture, pluck out one wedge of their society, and make it be different. You know, that wedge of their society is very much embedded in their society and operates probably for decades, if not centuries, in the manner in which that society has operated. Uh, and I would suggest we need to have a little less hubris and a little more humility about our ability or any other country's ability to step in with enough money and enough people to just fix it 
because it's an urgent problem. So that leads me more towards an international solution and towards time. Now, to come back to one other embedded question I think is important in what you were asking, and that is um, the, the HR question. Do we have time to wait for new foreign service officers? We don't have the luxury of not having the time. I mean, that's how you recruit them. Now, if you want people in working in the foreign service culture who are manifestly different, and I'm arguing here that we need a new type of foreign service officer, who can walk and chew gum at the same time, be a report, represent, negotiate, and know something about management and program, uh, then they're one, one of the tools that you use to get that faster than recruiting those people out of an MA program like the one I teach in is to bring them in mid-career, is to do recruitment mid-career of people who bring some of those skill sets into the foreign service at a mid-career level. You can do that under existing authorities. It's not like we have to legislate a whole new career for people in the Foreign Service or people working for the Department of State to bring people in with those kinds of expertise at the mid-career level. So in a sense, you have to, I forget who it was who said, you have to both repair the plane and fly it at the same time. We have to be able to cope with these problems, but the longer we put off dealing what I view as the fundamentals, the more we will see the shift in capacity the more we will see the erosion of the civilian capacity, and the worse the problem will become. So I like to say, it's like deficit reduction. If you want to reduce the deficit, you have to start right now. Any point in time will do. You don't wait until things look better. You, know, you start when you can start, and you can start now. Hi, my name is Mark David Block. Following up on this issue, um, changing the culture, changing the, the, the skill sets, the competencies, um, it seems to me, not only do you need to change them, but you need to reward them. Mm -hmm. um, because what I've seen over four years as a consultant at the Department of State is that the strategy and policy people are highly rewarded. Mm -hmm. The budget people, not rewarded at all. If you put a column of numbers in front of the strategy and policy people, it's chicken little. And if, if you put a column of numbers in front of the budget people, they can do a lot of manipulation, but they have no idea what it means in terms of strategy and policy. So the, the, the understanding of the relationship of resources to strategy and policy is very limited. And you, you spoke about planning a number of times, particularly in terms of the Department of State. I mean, that is a competency that is so non, well, I wouldn't say non-existent, but not well-developed. <laughs> yes. Right. And I, mean, I have found that it depends on what you mean by planning, whether you mean strategic planning or budget planning, just looking out mm -hmm. to the next fiscal year. Mm -hmm. I have found that it is almost impossible to get foreign service officers to think, officers to think strategically over a five-year period. They will always come back and talk about just about this in front of them, not about this. So how do you shift all of this <laughs> to get to where you want to be, which I think is a good no. place to be? No. Uh, again, I, you stated it better than I could state it. I mean, it is, it is obviously a very difficult problem. Um, and uh, we're going it, it starts again. It, so much of this ends up reducing itself to being an HR issue. We're doing a study at the Stimson Center right now that is funded by the Cox Foundation through the, the American Academy of Diplomacy. Uh, and they have asked us to do the legwork on what they're calling a 1500 based budget. It's not really that. What it is is 
if you had to staff up adequately uh, and budget adequately for the missions and responsibilities that state that the, the programs under the authorities of the Secretary of State, basically state aid, uh, do today, what would that look like? What would you need that's more than or different from what you have today? So we're working at Simpson Center on that project, which we hope will lead to something about September timeframe, uh, that looks at money and people. As we go through it, two things are very striking. One, how much of this is an HR issue? That if you want to solve this issue, you have to solve it through recruitment, training, education, uh, assignment, and incentivization, as you yourself said. That, you, that's, that is the core problem that will get to the answer to the, the issue that you've raised. Is that's, what you re, that's where you really have to start dealing with it. The other that we're seeing is having a group of advisors uh, who shall remain unnamed, um, who many of whom are Foreign Service officers, retired. Uh, it is constantly a source of amazement uh, the things that they are not aware of because they have been through, they're retired, they have been through the old structure, the old culture. Uh, they know what they know and some of them are damn good at it. Uh, but they don't know things. They don't know your column of numbers. They don't recognize the program labels. They don't know the alphabet soup. They don't know the authorities. They don't know what can be done. In my experience, I've come across Foreign Service officers who do. There are some who are, are really uncannily good at knowing, at walking and chewing gum. They know program. And they know report, represent, and negotiate. And they're able to do both things, which says it's humanly possible. Right? What you have to build in the HR system is the incentive for learning to do it, which is why I go back to saying, over time, the only real answer is creating the new Foreign Service Officer. It, yeah? Because there is a flip that uh, strategy and policy people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, which isn't to say there are many people that can, but there are way more that either won't or don't. I think you're right, and the system disincentivizes a different distribution of, of rewards and expectations, which, which makes it very hard. It's one of the reasons that, as I said in my talk, I really don't want to lose F, the Office of the Director of Foreign Assistance. I really don't want to lose it because having spent years trying to f find an answer to the conundrum that you've raised. Uh, it's the first attempt I've seen to bring strategy, planning, policy, strategic goals, and money program together in one place. I mean, I'd obviously do more if I were God, and probably people over there are very happy that I'm not. But I would, you know, I would really reintegrate the management uh, operating side with the program side in that architecture so that you have a true relationship between what it is you're spending money on and how many people and what their skills are that you need in order to do it. Because right now those are very bifurcated. The budgets are planned separately. When I was at OMB, they were submitted separately uh, to OMB. It was as if, you, you know, Mutt and Jeff, it was two different people. They hung out together, but they were completely different characters. Uh, and I, I would pull those back together, but that's why in my mind, my shorthand version of that is somebody who is a COO in the building. That what those things, your, your disincentive structure works late, least well, thank God, when somebody like a Larry Eagleburger or a Rich Armitage is the deputy in the building. Typically, your deputy secretary of state wants to be the secretary of state and is the secretary of state when the secretary is on the road. 
but it's not an operator. It's not a manager. It's not somebody like you know a, a DOD deputy whose sense, except for Paul Wolfowitz, whose sense of responsibility is to the internal operations of the building. I think the state aid complex desperately needs that, which is why I'm considering the advisability, for me at least, of saying take an existing statutory position, the, the, the deputy secretary for management, and give it those responsibilities. You don't have to change the statute to do it. And over here, all the way down. Thanks. Um, Greg Sanders, CSS. I think it's probably safe to say that post-Cold War, the field seems like a more dangerous place. And we, when we had various reactions, including fortifying our embassies. If state's going to take back many of these roles, it seems like we're going to have to operate in more dangerous environments, even excluding the specific PCR case. Um, how do we do that? It's a real challenge. We were just talking about that the other day because what clearly has happened, especially in the wake of the uh, Kenyan Tanzania embassy bombings, is the, the huge growth in the fortifi fortified fortresses uh, of the Department of State in other countries, the embassies, uh, you know, the setback requirements and the reinforcement requirements and uh, the restrictions on movement and the enhanced security all have made America look overseas like a more beleaguered nation, and indeed in some respects we are. Uh, so it's a reflection of reality, but it flies directly in the face of the kind of openness that we need to have and, and, and the ability that we need to have to touch societies out of those embassies and out of satellite capabilities outside of the capital uh, in a lot of countries. And there's going to be a trade-off if the world is indeed more dangerous. Now, it's obviously not more dangerous everywhere, but it is more dangerous in some places. Uh, so you, we, I think we need a lot more attention to the variations in degree of danger and risk, and frankly, some more willingness to take risk to bring the representatives, the official representatives of the countries out of the woodwork and out of the fortresses and back into society. We, we, we paid a terrific price, I think, for what happened to USIA, and we're doing some dealing with the public diplomacy function in this study. Uh, we paid a terrific price in the absorption of, DI, uh, of USIA into state. But that's done, it's water under the bridge. The, uh, the Secretary's Commission on, Advisory Commission on Diplomacy has, has recommended creating a semi-autonomous capability within state that reintegrates some of those assets, and we're going back and forth about what, what that might look like. Uh, but in the field, having a cultural presence, uh, public diplomacy presence, is going to be critical to the way our foreign policy overall is viewed, and we've pulled most of that back in so that it's not touchable anymore. Uh, and I'm not saying dealing with that issue is easy. not like, okay, go out and get yourself killed. Uh, you know, it is a dangerous world out there, and diplomats have paid the price for it. Soldiers have too. Uh, but it's not dangerous everywhere, and we gotta think, you know, the, the default position of diplomatic security at the State Department is don't anybody take any risks because then it's my ass's grass. Right, I, I haven't done my job, uh, right? We're gonna have to push the edge of that and say a little bit more risk is gonna have to be taken. Uh, and perhaps more of DS needs to be uh, field deployed rather than Washington deployed doing the passport fraud chasing that it's doing here and being out in the field uh, doing more real security uh, for a more extended American military presence. But it's, it's, a, it's a good conundrum, but it's not, it's a right problem. We're going to have to deal with it in a more open way if we're going to have an effect. Let me take two more questions together, and then we'll let Gordon answer them as final questions. Yes, all the way. Yes. Hi, I'm Archana Palanipin with Oxfam America. 
Uh, with the new strengthened state that you argue for, how do you ensure that our current political interests of the day won't trump our long-term development goals? Do you really think that an undersecretary of state will give a cabinet-level voice and authority that's needed and fend off the mission creep? Okay, and one more. Yep. Right here. Charlie Stevenson, SICE. Uh, Gordon, I'd love to hear you describe how you would lash up OMB and NSC, especially given their quite different legal authorities, uh, sources of personnel, uh, and cultures. Mm -hmm. Let's see, we've got about a half an hour left, right? <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me take a brief stab at each of them. I think that uh, the, the uh, conundrum, the apparent conundrum that short-term always trumps long-term at State Department is actually not right. I, I, I see that pretty much as old think. Uh, there are obviously going to be people at the State Department who won't be able to see past their nose, and there are obviously going to be people in the AID or development world who never want to see any development dollar put behind any purpose that might have something to do with American foreign policy. But I think those are extremes. And that when you get to the field, most of the people who work with a, an FSO hat on understand that most of the people who work with an AID hat on, that they're at a common purpose, and that some of that purpose is well served by a commitment to long-term programming that focuses to some extent on the development of the country in which they're represented. Uh, and the AID people understand pretty well that some of the purposes that are foreign assistance dollars, and that's why I call it foreign assistance, uh, have immediate payoffs in terms of our relationship with that country. Uh, you know, again, it's a walk and chew gum issue. I think the, the institutions and the personnel in the institutions, especially in the field, are better at this than we give them credit for. Uh, and we tend to have this kind of boogeyman view of the State Department, the big bad State Department is going to take over development purposes. Well, the reality is both of these are more subtle, and they both contain elements of short term and long term. Where we need to get to, I think, comes back to your question, which is how do we train and educate both sets of people? So they know each other's responsibilities and they understand the texture of the short and long term. And that means being able to think longer than the bridge of your nose and to think about the integration of US foreign policy purposes. Uh, both sets of thoughts can be held, but there's a cultural work that needs to be done. Now, as I said in my talk, I think that's starting to happen, uh, both in terms of the, the reality, which is our so-called so development people are really implementing 52% of the state aid monies for non-development purposes initially. Some of it may end up being used for development, but that wasn't why it was allocated to that country. It was allocated to that country for a strategic or policy purpose, and that's why it was there. Um, and at State Department, you have people who recognize that you don't uh, develop a, an alternative crop infrastructure in the Andes in 24 months or even 12. You know, that it takes a long time to reorient and so that there's a function for a longer term investment and development in the Andean counter-narcotics program uh, that has to be part of the overall architecture of counter-narcotics programs along with uh, attorney general and justice training operations and interdiction operations and crop spraying and all the other things that are part of a shorter term approach to counter-narcotics. In the real web, you know, weaving of our relationship with other countries, this is much better understood than our Washington dialogue about you know, who's bad and who's good and whose purposes are going to be served. Now to come to your question, Charlie, um, shorthand version, 
for that for for what I was suggesting in very shorthand way to work it means building a capacity in both organizations which does not now exist in either organization uh, that is to say in the National Security Council I don't think there's room here I don't think there's a need here for a lot of statutory change but in the National Security Council there is not a capacity any more than at state to do long-term thinking these guys are basically worried about the next week, the next month, the next crisis, the next presidential visit, uh, the next trip. That's, that's what NSC people do with most of their life, which means you have to bring in a skilled person with a sense of longer-term strategic planning, and I would say probably create a cell whose responsibility it is to do this longer-term uh, strategic planning and guidance activity, working with the other senior directors and directors in the NSC architecture, equally at OMB, you're worrying next year's budget at the longest. That's your longest trajectory. Usually it's firefighting this week, next week, next month. So you don't have people who understand the strategic money relationship as well as they should, and you don't have people whose capacity to think long-term uh, is as strong as it should be. So you need to bring in budget planners that have are capable of thinking strategically and over a long-term horizon and probably creating a cell whose responsibility it is to work in an integrated way with an NSC cell in working the guidance and in working the, the, in working the quadrennial review, the planning guidance, and in, in helping the uh, RMOs and the national security offices pull together that national security budget document. You're going to have to add capacity. It's always hard in bo all, both organizations because the White House never likes to say, well, we beefed up the center and the departments are screaming for people. right? Why did, why did you do this? You know, you, yeah, OMB, you added people, but you cut us, is the usual argument that you would get. So neither organization grows itself. I think in the modern world, that's a mistake, and that there's a strategic rationale for growing both organizations, but the strategic case has to be made. It's not just a question of more power to the center. It's more responsibility to the center because our strategic purposes now demand that capability. Well, Gordon, in the spirit of smart power, you've, you've left us not just problems, which Washington loves to fret about, but hopefully some, some real solutions. So we're very grateful for that. And I ask the audience to Thanks. join me in thanking Gordon Thank Adams for his talk.